Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. We're going to be talking about some of the stories making the news here in Ireland and around the world. And coming up on today's show as a raft of big companies leave the Irish Stock Exchange. We're going to be looking at exactly why they're leaving and explore the importance of actually having a stock exchange here in Ireland. I'm going to be talking to Donald McNamee from the Sunday Business Post about that. And later in the show, while Vladimir Putin was clearly prepared for the initial economic impact of the war in Ukraine, the conflict has dragged on far longer than he expected. Now, as Putin's war chest runs down, Melissa Lawford of the Daily Telegraph will be joining me to discuss what it means for the future of war on the margins of Europe. And finally, Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez pulled off a late swing during the final days of the Spanish election campaign last week. But we're going to look at the predictions that were made by pollsters and pundits in the run-up to that election, how things actually transpired and what might happen next. Could Spain be headed for yet another election? I'm going to be joined by Aitor Hernández-Morales, who's a reporter with Politico News Agency, and he'll be giving us the latest from Spain. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, of late, there's been a lot of movements on the Irish Stock Exchange, but they're not necessarily the type that traders like to see because we've actually seen a big number of large companies depart Ireland to do their trading elsewhere. To examine why this is happening and what it means, I'm joined now by Donald McNamee, who's a business reporter for The Business Post. Donald, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks, Wendy. Now, as I say, lots of activity, but not the usual type of trading that we like to be talking about. Companies leaving Ireland to trade elsewhere. How many have left and who are they? What type of companies are going? In the last five years, uh, according to, to Euronext Dublin, which operates the Irish Stock Exchange, 21 companies have departed. Um, and there's some big names in there. Obviously, CRH are the most recent and the most high profile um, so they announced in April that they're going to delist um, from the Irish Stock Exchange, but there's been plenty of others as well, um, CPL, Apple Green, Hibernia Reef. Um, so there's been a lot of companies ha- have left um, and not many coming up to take their place. So there's only five companies have joined uh, mm. the Irish Stock Exchange in the last five years. Wow, there's some big, big names and I can only imagine that they make up quite a bit of the Irish Stock Exchange as it is now. But why are they leaving, Donald? I think there's there's plenty of reasons. I like CRH, for instance, sort of they're doing a lot more trading in uh, in America now, so they would say it makes a lot more sense um, for them for them to trade over there. Um, one sort of um, reason that has been suggested is that you know Euronext Dublin just doesn't have the um, the depth of liquidity that companies can avail of in London or in New York. Um, now Euronext would say you know it's a pan-European consortium of stock exchanges, um, so there is that depth of liquidity. But um, as we reported last Sunday, they're sort of making the point that because we charge a one percent stamp duty tax on the trading of listed Irish shares. There's a there's a sort of inbuilt uh, disincentive for traders around Europe to invest in Irish companies. Mm. Um, so there's a number of reasons, uh, but, but those are, I suppose, are, are a selection of them. And so to the places they're going, like the, the US, the UK, Canada, like what type of charges would they get there, if any, or is that the incentive? 
Yeah, in, in the US, um, there, there's an exemption on uh, a stamp duty exemption when it comes to the trading of listed shares. So you don't pay any uh, stamp duty. Uh, and in the UK, it's 0.5%, um, which is obviously half of what, what it is here. And even in the UK, there's sort of been persistent calls on the government to uh, to scrap that uh, stamp duty tax because um, obviously they've been having their own conversations uh, about the, the sort of viability and future of, of the city of London over there. Mm. And like when companies like CRH, CPL and, and Hibernian leave, how much was that worth to the Irish Exchequer? It's worth quite a lot. Um, the the, um, the Euronext submission uh, goes into sort of some of the, the details um, and even in sort of stamp duty uh, alone, um, the the letter that that your next Dublin have written to, to the government and uh, makes the point that uh, as much as 60 percent of the of the total stamp duty arising from um, the transactions of, of listed Irish shares uh, is attributable to, to crh and flutter which are two of the biggest companies uh, on the irish stock exchange or, or crh was until it obviously uh, announced its intention to depart and flutter is obviously uh, been kind of flirting with that idea as well they've sort of said that they may delist from from the irish stock exchange if they can't resolve a technical issue and um, because they're also obviously um, planning to, to list on the new york stock exchange mm. um, so there, there's a big impact on the irish economy uh, uh, when these companies sort of um, when they make uh, when they take off so as you said there euronext are the people who are running the irish stock exchange just explain to to us all a little bit about who they are you mentioned a consortium of of eu uh, trading stock exchanges Exactly, yeah. So Euronext, uh, they acquired the Irish Stock Exchange in um, uh, 2018. Um, so there's a lot. They operate uh, stock exchanges in France, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, uh, Norway, and there's one or two others as well. Um, so they're, they're, they're a big player um, and sort of uh, they, they would sort of see themselves as a major, major player. Um, but in Ireland, obviously, they've sort of had uh, had one or two struggles in, in recent years when it comes to um, attracting new companies and being seen as a viable option for uh, for high growth Irish companies. Um, you know, when it comes to I suppose how they can scale up and how they can grow, um, that that's sort of been a problem for them in, in recent times. Mm, so, as a momentum business, they're they're not in a good place. If you like, you know, they've got those big high profile departures, taking a lot of money with them. Only five new entrants, as you mentioned, um, petitioning the government now. I presume for these stamp changes in the next budget. But what is the big sell? for Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue as they look at this uh, for budget 2024? Like, what's the benefit for them to to, 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 to to make these changes other than, you know, these companies have gone, they're not going to come back. What What's the sell? Well, I suppose uh, one thing that the government has been talking about in recent times, Simon Coveney, the, the Minister for Enterprise, has sort of um, made the point in recent weeks that he wants to grow the next generation of big, high-growth Irish companies like the, the new Stripes, the new uh, Kerry Groups. Um, and if you're going to do that, um, you probably need to have a viable uh, stock exchange. That's a sort of a, a real option for these types of companies to, to list on or to, to, to IPO uh, on. And right now, uh, you're next Dublin. Are sort of making the point that uh, these companies, if they know if they list here, 
investors that, that are looking to trade in their shares are going to have to pay uh, that 1% stamp duty charge, which is, uh, as they, w- they would say, sort of an inbuilt disincentive and puts us at a competitive disadvantage versus other con- countries. So, um, so, so I suppose if, if you want to grow, you know, uh, a, a sort of, a, as Coveney has said, the next generation of, of, of Irish companies, uh, you want to have a stock exchange where they where they want to do business and where they can sort of um, where they can viably list. Mm. And this comes to the IPOs um, and to try and encourage, I suppose, uh, a greater pipeline of of indigenous businesses to go through that exactly. process and go into that process. Um, Donald, if if we didn't have a viable stock exchange, would that affect the reputation of Ireland internationally? I would definitely. Uh, I would say that, that there's a strong argument that that it would. Uh, Your next Dublin would certainly say that it, that it would. Um, I think you know the, the sort of there's been a lot of hand wringing in the last few years about uh, the sort of demise or the decline of the, of the Irish stock exchange. Uh, you know that it's it's a it's an institution with a with a sort of I think about a 250 year history. Uh, probably need to double check the exact. Mm. Uh, uh, length of that but it's it's you know it's, it's been around a long time and, and if there was no viable stock exchange um i think it would do sort of a, a lot of reputational damage to ireland as a sort of a a, a hub of, of international finance and um, like you know we've done very well at attracting foreign capital in the guise of direct investment from, from multinationals um and there's sort of no reason why the government shouldn't be trying to be successful uh, at attracting international finance into into the Irish uh, public market. Mm. Now, what are the, the government? I know you've mentioned Simon Coveney there, but he's the Minister for Enterprise and obviously has mm. to protect our reputation internationally, trying to get all the international business he can into Ireland. Um, but have they said anything else about their attitude towards the stock exchange? I mean, it has to have arisen before if this has been happening for over the last five years. Yeah, well, Coveney and and Michael McGrath have sort of, uh, you know, they've they've spoken, I suppose, in broad terms about the need um, for you know a place for for Indigenous Irish companies to trade. Um, I, I, you know, I, I contacted the Department of Finance to just ask them what their position was on on your next mission. They 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 don't comment obviously in advance of of the budget, which is when uh, your next want them to make this this decision. Um, so they I. They haven't said in in recent times. I don't think too concretely what what they're going to do. There was a consultation in 2017 um, that that was launched, sort of looking at the stamp duty on, on Irish shares, um, and there were policy changes made then. But when it comes to sort of the trading of listed Irish shares, um, there's still that one percent uh, stamp duty that that uh, that you're an extra are sort of exercised about. Mm. Don, one final question on this before I let you go: Has Brexit had any influence on this or affected it in any way? Uh, in, in what sense, sorry? Like in the sense that um, I started to read about um, a lot of the UK companies thinking about looking at Ireland and so it, would this be any kind of consideration for them as choosing Ireland as a location or just doesn't matter where you can base yourself? Oh, possibly, yeah. A lot of them I think seem to be moving, you know, parts of their operations or have moved parts of their operations over to Ireland. But again, it kind of comes back to the same the same thing. Uh, like if, 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 if these companies are looking at the Irish Stock Exchange as a sort of a you know, as an option, if 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 investors in 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 those companies are going to have to pay a one percent tax, then there's just not the same mm. sort of. Uh, I suppose I keep coming back to the same incentive, you know, for for them to do that and for them to sort of um, to 
uh, create large operations in Ireland when it comes to, to sort of um, their presence on the public market. Yeah, well, look, I, I definitely think it's one of those issues that is under the radar, but certainly want to look out for in budget 2024 because it does have international reputational significance for us. Uh, but for now, we're going to leave it there. That was Donald McNamee, who's business reporter with the Business Post. Donald, thank you very much for your insights today. Thanks, William. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, the pollsters got it wrong in Spain. But can Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez rescue success from the jaws of defeat? Stay tuned to hear the latest from Spain after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, what happened in Spain's snap general election last week? Because an expected coalition between the Conservative People's Party and a far-right Vox party just didn't materialise. So what actually happened and what happens next? Political reporter Aitor Hernandez-Morales joins me now to discuss. Aitor, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, pretty much the opposite of everything that the pollsters and pundits had predicted would happen did not happen in that election. So I just want you to give us a little bit of context uh, for our listeners here in Ireland. What were the expectations in the run-up to this election and what actually transpired? It it really is a remarkable situation. Uh, So this election was called, there's a SAP election, it was called because on uh, May 28th we had nationwide local elections in Spain and the uh, governing Socialist Party, which had the left-wing coalition, uh, basically got trounced. Uh, they lost control in every major Spanish city, with the exception of Barcelona. And it seemed pretty clear that the, uh, that the tide had turned against uh, Socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. Now, he only had a year left in this legislature, so he knew he had to call elections uh, by December. Mm. And he decided to move them up, arguing that the Spanish people had spoken and that they deserved to decide what kind of government was leading them at the national level. Hmm. However, it should be noted that this was a very smart move on Sanchez's part because the uh, People's Party did get the most votes in the local elections, but they did not win outright majorities in any city. Hmm. And so what Sanchez uh, decided to do was to campaign for these uh, for this national vote at the same time that the People's Party was forming local and regional coalition governments with the far-right Vox Party. And so voters were able to see in real time what they could end up with at the national level. And I think that probably had a lot to do with what we finally got in the uh, in the election on Sunday. It's such an interesting election and it's such an interesting confluence of two things happening at the same time where they're having that debate where something that maybe sounds politically um, appealing, then when they're teasing it out at a national level, doesn't actually transpire to the national vote and people don't want that type of a government. But anyway, let's start by just reminding us um, how you actually form a government in Spain. Like, what are the numbers that you need? Right. So Spain is a parliamentary democracy and therefore it doesn't really matter who gets the most votes in the election. It matters who can form a majority or get majority support in the parliament. Mm. So the parliament is composed by 350 MPs. Uh, The absolute majority would be 176 and no party controls those seats. Moreover, there's no party that controls a coalition that is capable of conquering those seats. Right. So okay. we know that whoever is the is the candidate to be prime minister, that person is going to fail the first vote that they have in parliament, which is to see who can reach the 176. But 48 hours later, what we will have is a simple majority vote. And that basically means more yeas than nays. 
Now, that sounds simple, but it's actually very complex because MPs can abstain. Hmm. So um, what we know right now is that the People's Party has no chance of winning either vote. And that's basically because the key to them getting anywhere close to that 176 is forming a coalition with the far-right Vox Party and no other party in the parliament will support them. Hmm. But uh, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, he's already chosen his preferred coalition partners. That would be the left-wing Sumar Party. And together they have a little over 150 seats. And it looks like he is going to be able to get the parliamentary support of a vast array of nationalist and separatist parties that should bring him up to 172. So Mm. the question you should ask is, okay, 172 is not 176. That's fine as long as he can get the uh, separatist Catalan Junts party to abstain. Mm. He would still have more yeas than nays. But if the Junts party does not abstain and votes against him, he also will not be able to form a government. And that means Spain will go to new elections either in December or more likely in January. Right. So he's aiming for a coalition that's built on a coalition uh, of of other parties. Plus, he would need the abstention of some. um, And if that doesn't work, they may be back to elections. Now, before we go into all the consequences of getting uh, quasi support from, you know, the the separatist party wing and all that. Just, I want you to explain to to me and to our listeners about the Vox Party, who they are and and what was the expectations for them in this election? Because they were doing quite well, according to the opinion polls and pollsters and pundits. So uh, the Vox Party is an interesting phenomenon in Spain. Uh, What we can basically say is that the Vox Party rises as a response to uh, the left-wing Podemos party, which starts gaining steam uh, over the course of the last decade. And Vox uh, comes out as a as a uh, ultra-conservative, ultra-national reaction to those progressive policies. Mm. Um, in terms of what, what defines Vox, so Vox is uh, ultra-nationalist, so they very much believe in the centralism of the Spanish state. They do not believe in any sort of regional autonomy. Uh, in fact, they would like to ban some of the of the uh, regional languages, or at least not have them taught in schools. Um, moreover, one of their obsessions is gender equality. They are very much against it. Uh, in the places where they've governed, they've generally dismantled any department that takes care of gender equality, and more specifically, the departments that try to address the problem of violence against women. Hmm. Volks considers that violence against women is a myth, and that most of the uh, denunciations that are presented by women who are abused by their partners are false. Uh, obviously, this is not true, and it is a, a, a you know a mad position that they have. But uh, Volk considers that um, white Spanish men of a certain age are being targeted by society and need additional protection. Uh, moreover, in places where they've governed, they tried to ban uh, pride flags. Uh, in some towns, they've started banning plays and books. So it really is a, a the quintessential definition of a far-right government. Uh, and in terms of their performance in this election, it's a curious situation because in the last uh, local elections that we held in May, what we saw was that Vox continued to advance at the local level. They continued to get city councillors, but they're floundering anywhere above that. So mm-hmm. at the regional level, they're having a lot of problems. They're not gaining as much support as before. And then at the national level, what's curious about these elections is that Vox more or less performed to expectation. Mostly the polls have them set to get between 20 and 30 seats, and they ended up capturing 33. 
Uh, now, the curiosity here is not so much Vox, but rather the popular party. Basically, the popular party dramatically underperformed. Mm. Everyone had them projected to get around 160 seats, but they only got 136. And that indicates that the Spanish public was less than impressed by their candidate, Alberto Núñez Feijó, but also that they just weren't willing to give power to a party that so clearly was willing to form a government with the far right. Mm, okay, interesting that there's that difference again between what's, what's uh, acceptable at regional level and then when it gets to national, it might be different. Just about the mm. Spanish left then, if um, Sanchez and his party didn't secure the enough votes to, to, to get a, a dominant position, where did the rest of the votes go? Right. So uh, in terms of forming a government, what Sanchez will need is the support of all of these uh, nationalist and separatist parties that are in the uh, Spanish parliament. And most of them have indicated that they're very much willing to sit down and come to an agreement with him, because what we've seen in these elections is that all of them have lost seats. And they are, it seems, very well aware that if Spain goes to another set of elections, they will probably be punished further. Mm. Uh, the polarization of the country is such that many people are practicing what in Spanish we call voto útil, so practical voting, which means you vote for the biggest party in the hopes that you'll be able to ward off uh, the, the party on the other side. Mm. For Vox, that ended up damaging them because a lot of people who might have voted for them in other elections ended up voting for the popular party. And on the left, what we see is that Sumar, which is the successor party of Podemos, uh, the, the far left group, it hasn't performed as well because so many of its traditional voters decided to cast their vote for what they considered the safer option, which was Pedro Sanchez. At the nationalist level, what we are seeing is that the Basque and Catalan separatist parties have all lost seats. And again, if we go to further elections, they're likely to be punished. So in this case, these parties that traditionally consider that Spanish affairs have nothing to do with them are now very much willing to prop up a progressive Spanish government, which will be much more interested in dealing with them and coming to agreements with them. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Aitor Hernandez Morales of Politico about what happened last week in the Spanish snap general election. Very interesting, Aitor, about putting a coalition together like that. And if they could manage it, it just makes things very unstable for the future on individual votes around budgets and tax and stuff. But just let's look from a wider context at how that type of instability might affect um the wider European project, just let's say, because Spain have the presidency of the EU at the moment. So how might that affect the running of the presidency in your view? So the good thing about this is that uh, everything that's going on in Spain and the reactions that we're having in Brussels indicate that as, you know, incredibly boring as the European Union is in terms of its mechanisms, those mechanisms work. Uh, Spain right now is being rocked by a very unstable political situation, and that situation is only going to get more critical as these parties all try to negotiate and form a government. But the great news is that in terms of the Spanish presidency of the EU, that has zero effect because that's being run by the Spanish and European bureaucrats that will not change during this time. Mm. So the program is already in place. The wheels keep turning. The machinery keeps working. The only difference that we would note is that normally when you have meetings of, for example, the Environment Council or the General Council or even the Council of the EU, what you generally have are the figureheads from Spain coming over. So you'll have the appropriate minister or even the prime minister coming in for those meetings. 
it's very likely that if those meetings coincide with key parliamentary votes for the next prime minister, those ministers will be missing. Mm. And that's fine. We'll, we'll just have Eurocrats step in for them. So you'll have people from Spain's permanent representation to the EU stepping in. But um, just to note, this was something that already happened in the lead up to the election. The EU held a key summit with Latin American states that Spain was very proud of hosting. But in the end, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez was not even able to stay for the press conference. He had to rush back home to continue campaigning. Mm. So we may see things like that. But overall, the presidency keeps working. And that's and that's very good for all of us. OK, that certainly is, because there's a lot of complex questions, um, not least what's happening in Ukraine, where Europe have a pivotal role, obviously. Um, I just want to go back to the Sanchez and potential coalition of the willing. Um, one of the other people we spoke of uh, having an influence in this election campaign was that Basque pro-independence alliance uh, of parties. You just explain to us a little bit about who they are um, and who's representing them and how if they were part of a coalition, even on an abstention basis, that might affect Sanchez's standing. So it's an interesting situation. Um, Spain, as we know, is a very young democracy. Francisco Franco kept a, an authoritarian dictatorship in place until his death in 1975. And so all of this situation is uh, thrilling and at the same time very confusing for Spaniards who have been used to 40 years of democracy that has generally been bipartisan democracy, mm. which is to say it's either been the popular party or it's been the socialist party. And so the other parties that we're mentioning here and that have this, this kingmaker role in this election, they haven't had as much of a say. Spain is in the process of evolving into a more traditional parliamentary democracy in the European bent. Uh, you know, think Denmark, uh, think countries like that, where it's very normal for you to have vast coalitions that have to come to agreements. You're absolutely right that that's going to make things like passing a budget much more difficult. Uh, and to be fair, the Spanish constitution takes that into account. And if parties can't agree on a budget, the currently existing budget will just be uh, re-edited for the following year. So Spain will never be left without a budget. Mm. It just means they may spend several years with the 2022 budget. But um, the thing that's very interesting about the parties that are willing to support Sanchez is that they're very likely to support him on everything else. And his left-wing coalition government during this past four years has really stood out for its progressive social legislation. So it's very likely that if Sanchez, for example, wanted to further Spain's legislation for equality, for gender equality, or for example, for violence against women, he would have no problem with getting the support of groups like EH Bildu, which is a Basque uh, separatist group, or Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya, which is one of the more historic Catalan separatist groups. In terms of your question of whether this affects his prestige, the most problematic relationship for him would probably be with EAT Bildu. Mm. This is a uh, Basque separatist party that, in its origins, had a lot of people who were associated originally with the Basque terrorist group ETA. It's true that Bildu is evolving and changing in a very interesting way. Gradually, the former people who were associated with ETA and that key message of separatism is getting pushed out. And what you're seeing is the group redefine itself as an extremely progressive, green-minded group. Mm. So this is one of those things where actually by deepening their relationships with Sanchez, it's possible that the more progressive figures in the party will be able to advance in that mission and redefine it in a way that uh, positions the group as the voice of the Basque people, but in a much more progressive, 
forward-thinking way that's actually very compatible with the European Union. Yeah, and I think this is so interesting even from an Irish perspective because we also, we have a party here in, in Ireland called Sinn Féin. It combines nationalism <laughs> with a a left-wing economic policy bent, if you like. Um, it's it's a young political force in the sense that uh, it's a new, uh, you know, it's it's newly successful in, in the political arena. Um, it's almost the same as the other two kind of traditional parties now in terms of the number of seats it has, but it it it, it, it does include members from a, a paramilitary group, um, but and that's, that's mm-hmm. its provenance, that's its origin. So it again here in Ireland is becoming a serious part of uh, potentially the next government and I think that's why this is very interesting from the overall government's perspective and why we should be looking and paying close attention to what's happening in Spain. But I digress anyway. Um, just Aitor, in your view, what's likely to happen next and what do you think is going to be the outcome of this? Do you think he'll manage to pull something together? Because I see at times they're sort of negotiating over social media now, which is a novel way to try and put a coalition together. Indeed, indeed. So uh, what we have is a, is a, is a very entertaining uh, scenario right now. Basically, since the elections ended, the uh, popular party candidate, Alberto Núñez Feijó, is insisting that because his party was the most voted party, he should be the candidate within parliament to be prime minister. Um, he looks very silly right now because he, he just doesn't have the numbers. And uh, the rest of the parties know he doesn't have the numbers. And frankly, they're treating him pretty brutally. He called up the Basque nationalists the other day to just propose sitting down, and they said they had no interest in sitting down with him and just would not be wasting their time with that conversation. So um, meanwhile, what Sanchez has done is very clever. He has gone on vacation. He announced that it was enough, that uh, there had been enough politics for the summer, that people deserved a break. So he is now on the island of Lanzarote, and he is swimming. He is enjoying his best life. Very discreetly, members of his party have stayed behind in Madrid, and they are the ones already having very discreet chats with the potential partners. Yeah. The goal here is that when Parliament goes back in session on August 17th, he will basically be able to come to uh, very quick handshake agreements. And that's key because on August 21st, the members of the leaders of the parties represented in Parliament will be called to Sarsuela Palace to meet with the king. And the king will have individual chats with them and ask them who they think should be the candidate. The king ultimately has the choice to decide who that candidate is. But to be very frank uh, with your listeners, the, 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 the current royal dynasty, the House of Bourbon, is not living its best time. Uh, the, the dynasty has been rocked by successive scandals, many of them dealing uh, directly affecting the king's father, uh, Juan Carlos. And so I expect that the king will try to uh, depict himself as an extremely neutral force here, and he will try to do everything exactly in accordance with the Constitution. And mm. the Constitution says that he should name the candidate best position to be prime minister. If Sanchez has the support, then Sanchez is that candidate. Well, certainly Sanchez has played a very clever game so far and taking yourself out of the equation to allow others to do the trench warfare is maybe the best tactic at this point. But Aitor, for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was um, Aitor Hernandez-Morales from Politico. Aitor, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your insights. A great pleasure. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues and the Kremlin's fortunes crumble. We're going to find out what it all means for Vladimir Putin. Join us after this short break.
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, next we're going to turn to Russia because it entered the war with Ukraine knowing that its economic reserves could cushion any initial impact, at least, of the war. But of course, that plan was based on the idea of a short war where Russia would emerge triumphant. But the reality has been very, very different to what many people expected. The war's dragging on, both the cost of living and the cost of waging a war, the effects of the Western sanctions, all eating into those uh, initial Russian economic reserves. I'm delighted now to be joined by Melissa Lawford from the Daily Telegraph to discuss the impacts of the war on the Russian economy. You're very welcome to Taking Stock, Melissa. Hi, thanks Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think Russia seems to be at a turning point here. It is. A, it's certainly an inflection point, really, I suppose, but that's based around economics. And sometimes I feel it can be a lot, uh, you know, very insensitive to be discussing the economics of war when there's obviously, you know, people are dying and displaced and suffering huge consequences. But there's no doubt about it. The success of war can largely depend on the economics, the reserves and the wealth within a country. So maybe, um, Melissa, start us off by telling us about the reserves that Vladimir Putin had built up um, in advance of the war and what he was kind of depending on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Putin had prepared incredibly well for this. He planned the war and he planned Russia's finances. So he had these massive cash reserves. You know, in, in sort of summer last year, I, th- I think Russia's current account had a surplus of something like $30 billion. Um, and at the same time, he received this enormous windfall, windfall from the energy crisis that he created. So we saw oil and gas prices absolutely skyrocket last year. And oil and gas makes up about 50% of Russia's exports. And, and the revenues on, on those went up well, on oil and gas, it was a, about 144% last year, up to $349 billion. So while the, while Russia was spending a lot of money on the war, it, it was also some, somewhat perversely making a lot of money out of the situation that it created in Europe. Uh, and, and one thing that it's also very important to mention is, you know, there, there was a lot of fanfare about around Western sanctions last year. And they, 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 they did hit Russia. And they did hit quite hard, but actually, when it comes when it came to oil, uh, those restrictions, the the Western oil embargo didn't come in until December 2022, and and then there were some further restrictions on on oil products that came in in February. So so Putin really had a, a long period of of free reign when uh, his his oil and gas revenues were were, were incredibly high, mm. and. What has happened now is that we have a kind of confluence of, of issues. First of all, those cash reserves that he'd built up have been spent. So, you know, he had that surplus of about $30 billion, uh, last summer. By June this year, that, that current account was in a deficit of about $1.5 billion. So the money is is has been spent. And then his income from oil and gas is now starting to fall. Um, That's partly because of the uh, embargo and and the sanctions that have come in from the West at the end of last year and the start of this year. But it's also because that energy crisis that he created is now coming back to bite him. It's dampened demand. 
and now prices are falling again. So oil prices sort of peaked at about $120 a barrel last summer. That's now down to 80. And, and Russia's oil and gas income is falling as a result. Um, it's down, well, nearly half. It's down about 43% compared to last year uh, and down by about 18% compared to 2021. Mm. Uh, across across this year, it's still going to be higher than, than pre-war levels it, it's still pretty strong but but it you know that that windfall has has gone and then at the same time i you know the the cost of the war is increasing governments the government's having to spend a lot of money it's also having to grapple with uh, a dwindling workforce you know some yes. estimates are that, that a million people have left mm. and and th- there's quite a lot of uh, channels of economic pain coming together here as you say a lot of things you know coming together at the same time which is affecting um his prospects uh, but i just want to go back to that energy issue for a second because um you know for many years, it's been talked about that uh, Vladimir Putin's stranglehold on energy, particularly in a Russia, in a, in a European context. Um, that was the big fear going into this. And of course, a lot of difficulties transpired. But from your point of view, looking at this now, Melissa, is there any kind of surprise at how Europe handled that issue of energy and supply in a in a I suppose in a in a more proactive way than maybe Vladimir Putin had anticipated. I'm thinking of Germany in particular who managed to sort of turn around their energy policy to try and store up energy of their own. I know some of the stuff that they did was maybe seen as regressive, but do you think Europe have moved to countenance those difficulties and that's kind of helping to I suppose what stop his stranglehold on the energy market? Um, I think, yes, you're right. Ger- Germany's transition away from its dependent on Russian gas was was quite remarkable. And I, I think it uh, exceeded a lot of people's expectations there. Um, in terms of the outlook, I, you, you know, we are... We are still pretty dependent on oil and gas more broadly. I think I think one thing that is working very well is uh, this price cap that the West has introduced mm. on uh, on Russian oil. So uh, my understanding is we we have a, an embargo. We we don't buy it, but other countries have are, are, are able to buy it, um, provided they're purchasing it below this price cap. Uh, uh, and and if they purchase below the price cap, then they can transport it on. Uh, they can they can use the Western insurance shipping insurance market and, th- and things like that. And because that price cap is in place, that is really curtailing the efforts from OPEC from Russia. It's curtailing their efforts to boost the price by cutting production, uh, which which I think is 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 proving to be quite effective. Mm. But um, you know, I, I do think Europe does still, sadly, have have further to go when it comes to to moving away from from general dependence on the oil and gas market. Absolutely, it may have accelerated the transition. I don't know to renewable energy, maybe a bit quicker than it might have happened otherwise. But look, that's one side of the balance sheet where he's building up the reserves and he's got this windfall from his chokehold on energy dissipating at the moment. Let's look at the other side of it, the cost of war. So you've written a very interesting piece about this recently. um, And I suppose most commentators on the war would accept that Vladimir Putin went into this thinking it would be a short, sharp war. Um, 
And that hasn't obviously been the case. But why was he so wrong about that? Well, I mean, why, why he was so wrong was I think he completely underestimated Ukraine and, and Ukraine's military capabilities and the extent to which uh, Ukraine is is pushing back. Um, I, but the thing that comes alongside having underestimated Ukraine is, is I think, you know, on top of the financial cost, there is this human cost to Russia and that, that is building, I think, you know, they've sent several hundred thousand men into the army. Maybe another million people, according to some estimates, have, have left the country. And that's really materializing in Russia's labor force. They have big labor shortages now. The, uh, the employment market is incredibly tight. That's starting to hit things like productivity, and it's certainly driving up wage growth. And that is one of the really big factors that is creating what I think is going to be a big inflationary problem in Russia. And I think that is uh, so the metric to, to be watching in the months ahead. The central bank there is already worried about it, already making uh, interest rate rises. We saw earlier this month, uh, the central bank bring in a uh, single a whole percentage point rate, they took interest rates up to 8.5% in Russia, which sounds quite extreme, but, but is, is this slightly different when we're talking about emerging markets compared to, uh, you know, the, the rates that we're used to seeing in, in, in Europe. But uh, they, they're, they made that rise, despite the fact that uh, consumer price index in Russia was actually below Russia's target rate, which is higher than uh, Europe's. It's at 4%. And uh, inflation is actually still below that. And yet the central bank is intervening to, mm. uh, to, to raise rates, which shows that they are very worried about that. And I, I think that is uh, going to be you know, the, one of the big consequences of, of the length of this war for Russia. Mm. Now let's dig into that economic data in, in just a second. But if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk and I'm chatting to Melissa Lawford, who's a journalist with the Daily Telegraph. Just that economic data, look, how is Russia presenting its own figures to the outside world and can we can we believe the way they're presenting themselves? Uh, it's it's a big question, and it, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion around this because obviously they they do have incentives to uh, you know could, to conceal things, and they have started releasing much less data than they were doing uh, before the war. Um, there, there, there are a few things that it's quite difficult for the Russian government to to fake. You know, mm. one of them is the exchange rate. You know, and and we can look at that, and we can see that, that, that they can't they can't fudge that they can't uh, overestimate or underestimate that number so so the exchange rate is is something that economists flag as as quite a key bellwether for the state of the russian economy um you know the and and, and we can see that it has plunged uh, the ruble is down against the dollar by you know around 40 percent this mm. year and you that that is another thing that is going to flow directly into uh, inflation. You know, Im import levels have recovered. And uh, when the value of your currency falls, the cost of 
all of those imports goes up quite rapidly. And, and so that is another factor that is going to flow through into higher inflation. Um, there's also some, some quite interesting analysis um, being done in, in Europe, looking at alternative measures of tracking the Russian economy. Um, and, and some of that analysis suggests, uh, you know, economic activity is is doing a bit worse than official data suggests, but it's not dramatically different. I think the general consensus is um, not, not that the government is uh, putting out wildly inaccurate data, mm. but yeah, you're right. There, there is a, a, a bit of a mistrust, a distrust of, of some of the data points coming out of Russia. But I, I think that the currency is something they can't fake. Yeah, and of course, you know, one of the reasons for doing this is to present, I suppose, a more robust um, war footing for Putin going forward. But you mentioned there the issue of inflation. You've also talked about the people displacement, whether it's the conscription changes that he's making now or a million people leaving the country. When do they get to a kind of critical point internally where things like that actually start to um, build up and Putin can no longer just plough his own course, if you like, and that things like sanctions for Russians internally and externally begin to take hold where people actually cannot and won't put up with it anymore. Is there any signs of that kind of happening at the minute? You said at the outset here that we're we're reaching a, a crucial point in all of this. Um, I mean, it's absolutely the, the big question, uh, you know, at what point does the pain get too much for Russia to bear? I, I think what, what it's important to, to understand, first of all, is that, you know, Putin is a, is, it's a, it's a, authoritarian uh, regime he has a lot more uh, control and and so that kind of economic discontent has to be at much more extreme levels than mm. it would need to be in you know in places like Ireland or the UK it, it it's going to take a lot more in Russia for for that to to really hurt. I think the situation that we're moving into now in Russia it's it's not uh, it's not something cataclysmic. It's this slow burn. Mm. It's going to be it's going to be painful. But but the one thing you know econ- economists keep on stressing to me is that there is a lot of durability there. There are a lot of bleak that the Russian government can pull and, and this is going to be a long, slow, painful burn for for the population uh, as, as prices rise. But, you know, looking at the inflation data, because it, and Russia has this history of episodes of hyperinflation, which is defined as, as price rises of 50% per month or month on month mm. or more. And, and you know, we saw that happen in the 90s uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. This, this is something that uh, has happened in Russia in the past. And this is something that policymakers and the central bank will absolutely do not want to happen again because that is the kind of thing that that would destabilize a, a regime and you know I, I i don't think that we are approaching a situation like that 
you know, certainly not this year, but but it is a, a kind of looming prospect and, and is something that if this war drags on for many more years, you know, if it's three years down the line, um, one analyst I was speaking to earlier this week was saying, you know, in, in three years' time, it, the probability of that kind of situation does increase. And that that is the kind of cataclysmic event that, that would totally uh, de- destabilize the regime. But, but right now, it, it's a question of pain, uh, a long, slow endurance of, of economic pain. Melissa, you have provided us with, with a lot of insights into what's going on there now from an economic and a social point of view. And we really do appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. That was Melissa Lawford, journalist with The Daily Telegraph. Melissa, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Thanks for tuning in. And while this programme goes out on Sunday mornings at nine here on News Talk, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to today's guests for their time and their insights and also to the team here on Taking Stock. That's producer John Fardy with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo de Silva on sound. Next week, Professor Edgar Morganrath from DCU joins us with his views on the transport initiatives that are currently being discussed by our political masters. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.